This week on the Weekly Havoc, my guests were Aaron Kirk with his long-awaited book, The Hill, Dr. Donnelly Wilkes with his book, Code Red Fallujah, and of course, Havoc Journal owner, Charlie Faint. The subject this week, because of who our guests were, what they had written about, what they had seen, was how do you think about death? And it's it sounds morbid and it sounds like it would be a dark, depressing conversation. And it was dark. It was not de- as depressing as it could have been. Um, I came in determined to add levity and humor to it. And uh, that didn't really go anywhere. But it was a great discussion. Really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I, I hate to say that it's like moving, but it can't kind of can't help but be. Um, I think the specific angle that we really wanted to talk about when we talk about death um, was mortality, you know, and what that your own sense of your mortality and all that before you enter the service during your time in the military, especially on deployment and then after and how that conception changes based off what you've seen, what you've experienced and all that. And what was interesting is obviously with Aaron Kirk, he had enlisted as a young guy and and that experience and where he was before he entered the service was radically different from uh, Dr. Wilkes, who had, you know, obviously been in med school and, you know, uh, was much older and more mature uh, when he went to Fallujah. And it was a great discussion. I don't know. We had a really good time. We don't get too pompous with the philosophizing, uh, which is to say we didn't get pompous at all. Um, and, you know, anytime you talk about kind of these big, concepts. Uh, there's always that potential, but we steered clear of that. And I thought it was, um, just a really good heartfelt talk about what it means to see, uh, life and death issues played out in front of you and the lessons you take from that and how you apply them in your own life. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. I think this episode may even have the most value to civilians that never served. And or don't even know somebody necessarily in the military. I think uh, I think all of our guests did a great job of trying to bridge that experiential gap uh, between the military and civilian communities. But anyway, I think you guys are going to enjoy it, and I think there's uh, I'm excited for you guys to listen to it. And as always, I uh, can't wait to hear some of the feedback. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this week's episode of The Weekly Havoc, where we engage in a roundtable discussion with the staff and writers at Havoc Journal and try to make a little order out of chaos. Aaron Kirk served four years in the U.S. Marine Corps Infantry from 2008 to 2012, deploying twice to Helmand Province, Afghanistan. He participated in Operation Mushtarik and conducted counterinsurgency operations in Nawa, Marja, and Garmzir District. A lifelong writer, The Hill, is his first book. I have talked about The Hill. Charlie has talked about The Hill. Anyone that regularly listens to this podcast should already know about The Hill. But if they don't, they will learn a hell of a lot more today. Aaron, thanks a million for being here. Thank you very much, Chris, for having me. And and thanks for all the talking up you've done in the past. It's been No, listen, uh, happy to do it. And um, probably premature because I I told you pre-show, I just got my pre-order 
and it came in and it's actually manifested and actualized in my Kindle and I have to read it. But uh, I trust Charlie and when he's been praising you to the skies, I can't wait to tear into it. Um, and uh, anyway, we'll talk about it a bit more today. Then Dr. Donnelly Wilkes is a California native. He is board certified by the American Board of Family Medicine, has a bachelor's degree from the University of California, Irvine, and a medical degree from Tulane School of Medicine on a full Navy scholarship. He served seven years on active duty, two combat tours in Iraq in 2004 and 2008, was awarded the Navy Commendation Medal with Valor for his actions in the Battle of Fallujah in April of 2004. He was honorably discharged as Lieutenant Commander and opened Wilkes Family Medicine in August 2009. He is now the president and medical director of Summit Health Group in Thousand Oaks, California. He's a devoted husband, father, and Christian, and he is the author of Code Red Fallujah, which, again, I have bought and is sitting in my queue on my Kindle, and is one of those that I need to read at length, and we're going to find out a whole lot more about it today. Dr. Donnelly Wilkes, thanks a million for being here. Of course. Thanks for that introduction, Chris. Happy to be here. This is going to be fun. It is going to be fun and uh, really appreciate. I, I, I just want to take a moment to say, obviously, having two distinguished guests like you guys on is fits exactly what the topic is going to be today. Um, let me not get ahead of myself. Let me back up because I do want to bring Charlie into this. And uh, I just assume that everybody knows Charlie's on the show and they know everything about him. So I really have nothing left to say about him. But I'm sure there's going to be some people that are just tuning in for the first time. So, Charlie Faint is an active duty Army intelligence officer. He is the deputy director of the Modern War Institute at West Point. He has previous assignments throughout special operations, including JSOC, seven deployments, in addition to operational tours in Egypt, the Philippines, and Korea, three master's degrees, currently a PhD candidate, executive director of the Second Mission Foundation, owner of the Havoc Journal, and my right arm when it comes to this podcast. Uh, Charlie, thanks, man. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me back on the show. Really excited about today's episode. Yeah, we've been looking forward to this one for a while, right, Charlie? That's right. Really, really excited to have both uh, Dr. Wilkes and Aaron on the show. I've read both of their books. I'm very familiar with Aaron's books since he, he's, uh, he was kind enough to let us be the first book we produced on Second Mission. And I read Code Red Fallujah also, both fantastic books, and I highly encourage all of our listeners to give them both a read. Yeah, and I'll just I'll just stipulate up front. I hate hosting a show when I haven't read the books because I was telling uh, Aaron and 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 Dr. Wilkes, who I'm going to call Donnelly. By the way, if anybody has any problems with that, I got his permission ahead of time to call him <laughs> Donnelly. So don't take offense on his behalf if I call him Donnelly. But um, when I was talking to them both ahead of the show, I said, you know, I don't like the fact that I haven't read either of the books, and I might ask you questions that you like have dedicated entire chapters to. Um, so. You know, it's a little premature, but I really do look forward to reading them because I think just knowing the subject matter of what both you guys talk about, uh, I, I think that's incredibly fertile ground to cover. And obviously, we'll tear into that a whole bunch today. But I'm really looking forward to this. Um, today's subject, as everybody here knows, is how do you think about death? And it sounds obviously morbid because there's no real funny, hilarious way of prefacing that subject. But I think the reason I really was interested in that is, and I'll start just by being a little autobiographical, just to kind of set the, the levels. I think military service does something to one's conception of your own mortality. And that doesn't necessarily come from combat service, although it certainly it can. 
But I think even just in general, I think everything in the military is a measured set of time. You sign a contract for a certain number of years. You engage in a school that goes on for X number of weeks. Everything is measured. And as a result, in my experience, and this might just be me um, and something that I should share, shouldn't share with anybody except a therapist, but I do think that it starts to put a, a constant sense of time in your mind. And as a result, no matter what age you join the military, there's kind of a sense of mortality that comes with that because you're like you're constantly planning well hey i've got x number of years before i can retire and then i've got x numbers that i could get a bachelor's or a master's degree or a phd or a medical degree um and then i've got x number of years to execute whatever my second career is and then you know i'll die sometime after that there's kind of an implicit sense of mortality in my experience that comes in just with joining the military not to mention the the tours overseas and actually then seeing death up close and personal so that has always been an interesting subject to me, and I wanted to mine that with our panel of combat vets and talk about that a little bit more. So, Aaron, let me start with you. How did you – before you joined the military, were you just young, dumb, and not even thinking of death, not really like, eh, whatever, you know, I'll, I, I can live forever, or if I can't live forever, I'm not overly – I'm not going to worry about it right now. Or did you find that, that, hey, that was something you were considering even before you joined the military and were aware of? Well, I think this is a, a really interesting subject. Um, and, I, and I thought about it a lot before I came on. Um, but when I was a, a kid growing up and, and then into my teenage years, it was, you know, death was sort of this abstract um, it was something you saw in action movies. So for me, watching The Patriot, Braveheart, Gladiator, these movies that I grew up with, I'm a middle-of-the-road millennial, um, so that was sort of my my generation. But it was, you know, it was it was it was that, and then it was, um, you know, you'd see these scores of people saving Private Ryan, getting getting mowed down, right? And I'm playing with action figures, and the and death is just abstract, and then. You know, I I experienced in, in fourth grade one of my friends died in a like a, a rock slide. It was very tragic, um, and that was sort of my first sort of confrontation with with actual death. But even that um, didn't make it seem as concrete uh, as as maybe it, it did later. So I spent basically, and I imagine most most people do this, most kids do this, but you know, I spent a long time from you know, when I was a kid to a teenager, all the way up to joining the Marine Corps um, with this concept of death as, as a very abstract. It wasn't real. It wasn't, didn't really hit me. I was fortunate other than that in fourth grade to not have any, you know, close family members pass away. Um, I know that's not the case for everybody, but I, it's an interesting subject and it's definitely changed from when I, I was a, a teenager to then when I went into the Marine Corps. So Donnelly, before I shift to you, let me just follow up with one more, Aaron. When, so to join the Marine Corps, obviously you joined in 2008. So the wars were hot and heavy. You knew, you know, you're joining the Marines. If I remember right, Marines don't assign you an MOS before you're out of basic, right? So you didn't know what job you get, but you knew you were joining the Marine Corps and you knew it was right in the middle of the GWAT. So you knew you would be up close and personal with, you know, life and death issues pretty quickly. Did that cross your mind or was that kind of in the back of your mind and not, and again, just too abstract to really think about that much? It's funny you bring that up because I actually was so 
disconnected. I didn't, I literally didn't even know this is going to sound terrible. I didn't even know that the Iraq war was still going on. So I went to high school from 04 to 08. Um, and I didn't, you know, I sort of started looking into joining the Marine Corps when I was about 17 years old. Um, and I didn't know that there was still a war going on, um, honestly. And, and then I looked into it and I sort of started watching, um, you know, a lot of the, the footage, like I, I, you know, my, my dad went to Iraq and the initial invasion came back. I knew things were going on, but as a, as a concept, it didn't really, I didn't really realize that I was going to go to, to war. I didn't know that I was going to go to Iraq or Afghanistan. I just knew that I wanted to be a Marine. I mean, really? Um, so maybe, maybe that was just the generation of, of Marine that I came in as, but that's incredible. No, I didn't have any concept. Wow. Donnelly, how about you? Um, I mean, let's, let's back up to the, to the beginning in your pre-military civilian days. I mean, obviously you were heading down a medical track anyway, so death was probably less abstract to you to begin with, right? Yeah, I would, I would echo what Aaron mentioned as a, as a young child, I thought about it and I think I probably thought about it more than most. I, I remember having these moments when I was really young of that I loved life so much and I was having so much fun in whatever I was doing with friends and family that once it hit me, wow, this is, this could end someday. And, and that was a really poignant moment for me when I kind of maybe came out of the abstract part a little bit and that was fleeting, you know, and, and then it would go away. And then, you know, certainly when I chose my profession, um, uh, uh, or at least pursuing it, uh, I, I started having a much different view of it and focusing on, well, how can I preserve life and be a part of that, you know, realm and become a healer, so to speak. And, and so my outlook became much more optimistic. Um, yet I would say it didn't come full circle. And of course we'll get to that until I was in medical school and completed all that training, then joined the military and went through all of that. So this topic certainly has come full circle for me today. Sure. What about that thought process that led you to join the military? Um, Was it because you thought, hey, where's a place where my life-saving skills are going to do the most good? Or was there another motive behind it? The, The decision to join was multifaceted. Initially, it was, okay, I need a way to help me get through this big... Uh, point in my life of becoming a physician, learning somehow paying for it, and and certainly the military um, scholarship was one way to do that. But then more than that was what does my life look like in the military? I I had to come to grips with that, signing you know my commitment uh, before entering medical school. So I talked to a naval officers and physicians, trying to understand what my life would look like in the military. Did that to the best of my ability. And then at some point I said, yep, that's for me. And I signed on the dotted line. And then, of course, everything changed rapidly for me because my fourth year in med school is when the Twin Towers came down. And so my career changed drastically, as many people's did. And uh, we'll get into that as we go. Yeah. So before we get into, I do want to ask you about the 9-11, that impact of 9-11. But before we get into that... It sounds like you were already kind of reverse engineering your and mapping out your entire career plan for life, right? Because to yes. make that decision to go to medical school, did you find that limiting, freeing, 
uh, and I'm saying that obviously dovetailing it back into what I said up front about mortality and kind of the way that the military can sometimes start to make you regiment your life and, and assign mm-hmm. it a certain timeline. Did, did you relate to that or was it a bit of a different stimuli for you when you were going through that process? Uh, and you're referring to uh, Just deciding to go in the military. Deciding right? to go in the military and yeah. then knowing, hey, I'm going to do- dedicate X number of years to the military and then – you know, thinking in the back of your mind, at least there might be a civilian career for me after that. And how many years is that going to lead to? And you're kind of mapping out your life a lot uh, way up front. Yes, you're right. That was one of the tougher decisions is understanding that I I was defining my path in, in a number of ways by choosing to join. I knew that I would spend a minimum of seven years um, on active duty. I knew that there would very likely be some kind of deployment or overseas commitment and that I'd be at military installations during the bulk of it. And and that was a big decision for me because I certainly have been one that wanted to choose my own path and have the ability to adjust course when I wanted right. to. And uh, joining the military definitely confined me to a military life for a number of years. Charlie, what did you think? I mean, obviously you were, you were raised in a military family but did you ever feel that that sense of restriction or that lack of freedom by going by upfront saying, look, I'm going to dedicate a certain number of years to my military career. And that's a relatively inflexible life um, up front. Did you feel that or not? No, so much? I, I never wanted to do anything else that I always wanted to be in the army. We talked about this on the earlier show, all the influences of my childhood, like platoon and aliens, red dawn, things like that. I never wanted to do anything else. And I, I never really thought much about death, but I, I just got into my head when I was in high school that 18 was, was my midlife and I was going to die when I was 36. I don't know why. Obviously, that never happened. I'm, I'm closer to 50 now. But I did turn 36 on, I think it was my fifth tour, and we were in Iraq, and it wasn't going well. I think it was 2008. And I thought, okay, I, I'm going to die on this deployment. And, and it didn't happen, but that is something that I thought about the, the entire time I was there. So you thought that because of the age or because of what was happening on the ground or both? They they were mutually reinforcing. So you know when you're young, you, yeah. you think about yeah. all kind of weird things. I'm like, okay, I'm 18 mm-hmm. now. This is my midlife, so I'm going to die when I'm 36. And then when I'm in Iraq and things aren't going well, and it's 2008-ish, I guess, and everything's blowing up and everything. I, I even made a, a little video uh, to play at my funeral, and I sent it to my sister wow. because my sister yeah. and I are very close. You met Kathy. And mm-hmm. – and uh, said, hey, she, this is the only woman in my, in my family who's not going to freak out if I send her something like this. So if I died, they could show this video at the funeral. No one had to, you know, work anything, pictures of my life, stuff like that. And my sister, being the nosy little sister she is, watched it, freaked out, and uh, had to explain to her why, why I did it. Um, and then right. now it seems kind of silly that I, I got her all excited for no reason. But, yeah, that's, that's what I thought about it, Chris. Donnelly, what did you think the first time you dealt with death in the military? Was it first off, was it in combat or as a doctor, were you seeing it stateside and, and you know, in a non-combat environment? During my training, I, I certainly was in a number of circumstances where I, I did have to deal with death. And and that's a part of pretty much every resident's life is, you know, taking call in the different specialties, emergency room, trauma etc. Um, and, you know, you, you'll end up coming across it one way or another. Uh, I, I think the very first time was at a VA hospital when I had to 
perform chest compressions and, you know, CPR mm-hmm. on a, a vet who was dying from chronic liver disease right on the floor of his bedroom. And he passed away. And I think that was the first time. And I'll never forget his face and that experience. So you're, I was introduced to it, but it was always in a controlled setting, in an emergency room, in the operating room, some kind of a controlled environment. And when I joined the military, all of my field training, my combat casualty care courses, the time I spent in Texas uh, at the trauma center at USC was all designed to help me understand what it's like to manage and deal with battlefield trauma and, and, and then death in an uncontrolled setting. And that's the part that all the training in the world could not have prepared me for when I ended up in Fallujah. Why? Why was it? I mean, obviously, the the inherent trauma of just being in a combat setting is implicit. But as far as your understanding and let's call it, for lack of a better word, appreciation of death or deepening knowledge of death, did that change at all because it was in a combat setting versus kind of the more sterile environment of, of you know, a hospital? Yes, because you are just stripped down to the rawness of war, of life, of being, in my case, um, on my own, so to speak, from a medical perspective. It was just me, you know, in every other controlled setting. I can call in a senior doctor. I've got nurses. I had mm-hmm. corpsmen, which, amazing, and my they were on my left and right hands, and I set it up and down in my book. But, you know, I'm the senior guy out there in the field, in Fallujah anyways, and mm-hmm. uh, when you're stripped down to the bare bones, uh, I described it as when I was trying to tell the reader what it was like to perform, perform some of the combat care in the field, I described it as trying to dance ballet with a bull. And... Um, in just real brief description, it's you've got this, you know, this chaotic environment. It's extreme. The weather, the flak jacket on my back, the dust, and then throw combat right in the background. And that was the case for for me in a number of instances, mortars, rockets, indirect fire. We we had a lot of it because we were pretty proximal to the, the frontline push into Fallujah. And um, I'm trying to perform what I would consider sometimes to be an art and a, and a beautiful yeah. thing, medicine, even even combat medicine. Maybe it's a field mm-hmm. procedure, and sure. then it's this bull you can't control, but yet you have to, and you and you're and um, you have to uh, become one with it, so to speak, to actually get through it. So ballet with a bull—that's how I described it to my reader. How did that affect you? Um, and I know I'm jumping ahead, but. How did that affect you when you moved back into civilian practice? Did you feel like nothing will ever be that traumatic again? Do you have a been there, done that attitude now about death? What did that mean for you ultimately? It, it just, I think, helped me evolve as, in many ways. But as a physician, as a, uh, a husband, a father, and a human, it just helped me evolve to have a broader understanding of my place in the world, my fellow man and woman, um, even, even the enemy, you know, I think mm-hmm. the, the best leaders in, in history will tell you understanding your enemy is, is, you know, one component of, of winning the battle. So it just helped me evolve and I think become a better human and certainly understand death in a different way. Um, the gravity of it in Iraq, I don't think I'll ever be able to compare something to, to that, to answer that question. 
And I think after a year or two stateside and kind of going through my own personal journey, it definitely helped me be at peace with it more than I ever was before my deployment. Interesting. So Aaron, when you first saw it, was it a kind of a blast of cold water to the face? Was it, was it a shock of just that, that sense of you, I mean, obviously you'd gone through boot camp, you'd gone through SOI, you were used to kind of being, you know, a hoorah Marine, but, but now suddenly you have uh, the rawness of combat around you. How did you first react to that and to actually seeing real world consequences of it? Well, first I just got to say that I, I need to go get Dr. Wilk's book. Um, it's very compelling. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's, so it's interesting. Um, as, as a young Marine, I think on my, my first deployment, so it was more, it was far more about the, the threat of death and injury from the IEDs um, than it was about, you know, because in, 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 in Helmand province in Afghanistan at the time, uh, both of my deployments really, I mean, we had very good, um, you know, like a, the golden hour, mm-hmm. the medevac. Um, and it was sort of, um, the, a lot of those injuries, uh, you know, folks ended up getting saved, um, you know, which is, which is amazing. Sure. Um, but it was more the, it was more the, the constant sort of, um, threat, that something could happen walking around all the, all the time, every single day. The unpredictability. Um, Absolutely. My first deployment, um, I didn't even really think about it. I mean, I just was sort of, it was almost like I was on autopilot. I was just trying to, to figure out, you know, how to be a Marine at war, how to, you know, be part of this squad, how to do things like do the offensive into Marja and get prepared for that. Um, and it wasn't until my second deployment to Helmand province when I was actually in charge that it sort of started hitting me, um, like, wow, actually this is, this is real. Like this is the second chance to, um, to, you're going to go to combat again. You have another chance to either, um, make it home or not make it home. And there's also people that you're in charge of, um, that, that might not make it. And, you know, I'm, you know, thank God, um, you know, none of the folks from my squad died. Um, and you know, I didn't, I didn't, you know, thank God for that. But tell me, tell me about the time between the two deployments. Um, how much reflecting did you do or how much reflecting did you purposely not do? Oh man, that's a great question. Um, you know, the time between the two deployments was a time of transition. Um, the Marine Corps, there's this thing, this, the senior, boot hierarchy. So, you know, basically most folks in the infantry stay in for about four years. Um, and as after my first deployment, I mean, it was back to back to back deployments for this, uh, for this battalion, first battalion, third Marines. And so after my first deployments, a lot of those seniors and a lot of them were senior E3s and E4s, um, they started leaving. And so other folks started stepping up and, and being able to be in leadership positions and, um, and, there, I don't know if there was so much uh, a reflection. I mean, when you're when you're 20 years old, I mean, how much are you really reflecting on anything? How much are you really thinking about uh, what you just went through, right? And you're just kind of looking forward to the next 
the next thing. You're just sort of dreading the next field op. You're just sort of looking forward to the next wing night at, at the enlisted club on Kanyoe Bay, Hawaii. Um, I would say there was very little reflection now that I think about it. I mean, that's a great question. Um, I just, just sort of started, I just sort of kept moving. I just kept going. I knew that there was going to be a second deployment. Everybody that was in when I was in was doing two deployments or three deployments. Sometimes they were extending. Um, so there was very little reflection, really. I don't think I had the capacity to okay. reflect. Interesting. I, I'm going to, um, I'm not going to speak from any personal experience. I'm going to talk um, about a friend of mine who was in second Ranger battalion and he did eight years and it, he was on that cycle where he was doing six months deployed, six months back, six months deployed, six months back. And he said, you know, you're six months back. He was finding that he had to live as hard as he could because he knew he was going back for another six months very shortly. So it was these intervals of six months of robust, let's call it life for lack of a better descriptor. Um, because you know, Hey, pack it in while you can. Did you find that or was that not your experience? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I, I, <laughs> I had my, uh, driving privileges revoked when I was in the Marine Corps, okay. um, yeah. which was living on an Island. Uh, you know, so the, the, when I, be- between my two deployments, I had to basically, um, bum rides with people just to get outside the gate. And so I bummed a lot of rides, um, took a lot of taxis, but I definitely would say that I lived, I lived pretty hard between those two deployments. And do, uh, do you think you would have lived as hard had you been in the rear? Had I, well, if I hadn't been deploying again, I might've, you know, I might've put some thought into what being in the Marine Corps was going to be like, like longer term, right? It's, you know, those, those it's, it was a grinder. It was really a grinder for, for those enlisted Marines that, that were in from about, I would say, 03 to, you know, probably 2012, um, 2013, 14, even they were still doing Afghanistan deployments. Um, there was just no future but the next deployment. And then it was, we were all going to get out. Nobody wanted to stay in. And some of the guys who were, although ironically, some of the guys who were most vocal about getting out ended up staying in. Oh, interesting. So Donnelly, I mean, obviously what I'm hearing, I don't know if anybody else is picking up on this, is um, the difference between being a young enlisted guy and a more mature officer where you maybe know more or have more life experience going in, so you're more prone to think and analyze, maybe to your detriment, um, when you're in, for better or for worse. But I'm not sold on that. I'm throwing that out there as a hypothetical, which somebody can refute as they see fit. But what I'm wondering now, Donnelly, is I want to hear about the plane ride home after Fallujah. Was there a big cathartic sigh and deep breath and like, holy shit, I made it? Or was there more of a sense of um, you're still a little shook up and you can't really think clearly and you're just looking at 50 meter targets and let me just, you know, okay, my next objective is, you know, get my ticket. My next objective is land at Norfolk. My next objective is grab my bags. Or were you able to start reflecting almost immediately? Once we took off from Kuwait and uh, actually, I'm sorry, it's Altakadam. I, I, I was doing the holy shit. I made it for sure. Um, because I, 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 it took me time 
and I'll just backtrack just a, a touch to to reconcile the, the point in my life that had that brought me to Fallujah. I'll just be honest. Um, my life was so much different before I entered a line unit. I was in residency at you know Camp Pendleton, and even though I'm wearing the uniform, I still have a pretty normal life. I go work at a hospital, and then. I was plucked from residency, which, by the way, they've changed that rule. Now all physicians, before they can go um, active duty and serve like I did, they have to complete residency training as a physician. So I had one year of training. Any physician will tell you they're a baby doctor at that time. And then within six months, I'm in a line unit and we're headed to Fallujah. So it was a whirlwind for me. And um, I appreciate, you know, Aaron's comments, and I'm sure he probably will get a, a smile when, you know, I say that it was culture shock for me for a little while, you know, but the Marine Corps officers welcomed me and um, it was I'm, some of the, my best friends are still these these fellow officers, but I came from a different world and it took me a little time to adjust. And then next thing you know, we're on a convoy from Kuwait for three days headed into the, the heart of an ancient land and Saddam's oil rigs are on fire. And that's when, you know, it came full circle, the gravity that I was in. And I had some tough conversations with God as soon as the mortars started dropping the third night we're there hitting close enough to rattle my brain. And that's when I, that's when I first thought that mortar was meant for me. That person out in the desert wanted to kill me. And then Fallujah starts and that's a whole nother thing. So by the time I got on that plane, um, I was, I was on uh, cloud nine. I was going home to meet my my wife, my future wife, and it was nothing but celebration. That changed, obviously, but I was on cloud nine. I, um, I, w- I want to ask you, Aaron, about what Donnelly just said. What was it like the first time you realized there was someone out there who was specifically targeting you to kill you? Did that thought ever cross your mind? And if it did, what did that mean? How did you react to that? What did that mean for you? Yeah. Um, that is a, it's a, so my first, you know, my first deployment, there was, it was, um, not very kinetic except for a three week period where we went to Marja and we conducted operation Mosharak. Mm-hmm. And in that you're part of a, like a company, you know, that did this helicopter assault. We took the five points. Um, I shot a couple rockets. I missed one of them. I was very ashamed of that. Um, but it was the kind of the fire, that was coming at you and what was going on, it was nonspecific, right? So I didn't feel like it was really mm-hmm. directed at me. I felt like it was sort of, we're this group and we're fighting this other group. And I didn't really see much of the enemy because the distances were so far. Um, and so my second deployment, um, we get out into Garmser district and we occupy this 10 man patrol base, five Afghan national army, um, 10 of us, an interpreter and a dog. And I know when I go out and I patrol these six villages that if I find an IED, it's there because somebody's watching us and because they're trying to hit my patrol. And so we're doing foot patrols. And so we do. And, and, you know, it's not, we're not finding hundreds of IEDs, but we're finding the few that we find, the ones that we do find, um, and the ones that we worry about stepping on and the ones that we worry about finding, they're there specifically for us. I could tell you that there was a day, there were a couple of days where we had a patrol the day before or the week before or a few days before. And then when we came back, we found an IED on the place 
or right next sure. to the place where we walked for us, for my eight guys that were out on that patrol. And that was, um, you know, I'm not going to lie. That was, that was terrifying. Um, and that was just sort of the experience that a lot of Marines had. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't unique to me. I think, I think many Marines in Helmand province experienced that. Of course. And what did that mean for you? I mean, is that something that you, well, let me put it this way. Have you ever thought about that since? Have you ever thought there was me before I first recognized that I was being targeted as an individual and somebody was designating munitions to end my life and there was me after? Or is this kind of kind of an academic thing that I'm throwing out there? No, I think you're I think you're right. I, I think it's hard to um, put into words everything that you you know, I I felt like I, I went to war my second time as I was still essentially a child. I mean, I had been to on a deployment before and then I came out the other side and I was, I was a different person. I wouldn't say I was a man. I mean, I'm, you know, obviously, but I just was a different person. Um, and it wasn't even something I, I consciously thought about. I just was. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And, what, and what do you mean? How, how did that exact, well, exactly play out? What I wanted to say too, and you know, it's interesting because of Dr. Wilkes, you know, obviously experienced, I think he experienced so much more kinetic activity than I do. And so I, it's something that I, I did and, and it's something that I think about a lot, but no, it's just, it's, 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 it's very hard to put into words. Um, you know, when you're out somewhere that's very austere, um, and you're walking around and, and really there's very little in the way of what you're trying to accomplish, um, that what has filtered down from the highest levels of the strategy to Lance Corporal uh, Kirk here on the ground is just walk around and provide security for these villages. But what does that mean for a 21 year old to have to interpret that and figure that out? Um, it was a lot of responsibility and it wasn't, you know, it's not something that I think that I even did very well, mm -hmm. right? It's not mm -hmm. something in retrospect that I think I understood fully and, and could really grasp and really, um, yeah, I couldn't make things happen because what was supposed to happen, right? So the me before and me after was very different as a result of those experiences. Donnelly, did you feel that you were harder as a person or softer as a person after your experience? And you can define that almost any way you want. But um, for me, when I ask that, what I'm thinking is um, – Let's let's just say tougher or softer, um, or more resilient or more beaten. Any of those kind of derivations. How how did you feel before versus uh, after versus before you went on those deploy that deployment? I would say that after I was I was broken down to some of my more basic human elements that helped me be a better person. And, and so I'll give you two answers. When I returned from Fallujah in 2004, I'd say for a year I was harder. I was harder to live with. Mm -hmm. I was a little more irritable. I had pretty strict opinions on certain things, call it social media, politics, you name it, mm -hmm. because of, because, partially because of what I'd been through and because of where I came from. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I've always been someone of, um, you know, conservative nature and, and certain opinions about life. And, uh, you know, I just realized that o over that year or two leading up to my second deployment, I just started to see things with a softer lens, not changing who I was or 
or even my conservative nature, but a softer lens or maybe being able to stand in the other person's shoes a little bit more. My wife helped me with with some of this. And it just, it helped me be a better person, a better doctor and a better naval officer. So harder at first, softer as the years went on and probably even post 2008 and nine, my second deployment, which is when I wrote my book. I, I wrote it when I was back in Iraq that second time. Oh, really? Was, wow. Yeah. I was referencing wow. my field journal that I had kept in 2004. Um, oh, good for you. That whole evolution, I think, helped me become the ultimate you know, human that I would say I still am today. Charlie, that's something I think you and I have not done. We have not written a book on deployment yet, right? Not not yet, but hopefully my deployments are over, so all mine are going to be post deployments. <laughs> Miss that opportunity? Yeah, that's a that's a heck of a calling card. Um, I guess obviously there's that old truism, you know, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. In my experience, that's not always a hundred percent true. So, Aaron, let me ask you: Did you find that you were stronger for this experience, or were there? And I don't want to sound too maudlin about this, but are th- were there wounds that did not heal and you just kind of were like, yeah, that kicked my ass a bunch. And, and um, you know, I learned a bunch, but I'm, I'm not necessarily stronger for that experience. That's a that's a very tough question. Um, I I would not be who I am today were it not for the Marine mm-hmm. Corps. Um I think the Marine Corps is an, an imperfect organization, um, but I think that it is an organization that can put someone who's 21 years old in charge of some people in combat. And I'm not just ta- I'm not talking about me because I am not by any means any sort of an extraordinary Marine. There are, there were Marines that were 21 years old who were far who were leaders who were far better than I was, um, but. It can do that. It can put someone like that in combat. It is the culture of the Marine Corps that allows you to, to, to have that person be a fire team leader or a squad leader at 20, 19, 21 years old and have a measure of success. Um, at the same time, you know, it is that it, it's war. I think I think going to war as a very young uh, person and, and coming back, that that is going to impact the rest of your life. Um I didn't have the analytical skills. I didn't have any sort of method of dealing with really what I had just gone through, except for to come back and be like, like Dr. Wilkes said, a little bit harder. I mean, I was not, I was a little bit, I was not a little bit, I was, I was quite a bit more serious and, 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 um, difficult when I came back and I did not know how to process. I did not know how to deal with it. Um, and so I wrote a book. <laughs> no, um, but in, in all honesty, <laughs> yeah, that's right, um, writing, I first wrote, I mean, one of the chapters that I wrote was it's, I've written that, I wrote that story first, like when I, I think in like 2012, when I was getting out, that was the first time I put that down. I just had to, I had to get, get that out of me. And so now I feel like, you know, over, I've, it took me about eight years to, to write all the versions of this book and get everything down, um, and over that time, it, I sort of started processing and dealing with this. Um, so that's, I, I would say, does that answer it, your it question? It does. Um, and it actually makes, makes me wonder, circling back to our, our subject, how do you view your life now? And by that, I really mean the rest of your life. 
you know, are, do you feel like you're making up for lost time? Do you feel like there's, you're extra energized because you have a real clarity and purpose? Uh, how do you feel now about that? Um, I feel like I, I, you know, I just, I, I I feel like I'm, man, that's, that's a, that's a stumper of a question, right? I mean, you know, we've already talked about, I'm I'm a completely different person, but even the person that I was right after I got out of the Marine Corps to now is totally different. I'm so much more focused on, um, you know, I was focused on, on me for many, many years. And now it's, I try to be focused outward as much as I can, um, helping people, being with my family. Um, yeah, I, I wonder if a lot of, I mean, I, I guess I wonder if a lot of veterans go through, it seems like they have, they kind of go through this phase. A lot of the folks that I, I served with, you know, you get out and it's sort of this, you go and, and you, you, like you said, you kind of make up for lost time and then you, you kind of find yourself again. You get into your career, you start your family and it's sort of, you know, maybe there's a, there's a disruption in the timeline yeah. there that happens with you when you enlist, when you're very young. And then um, maybe now it's sort of evening itself out. Maybe that's really philosophical and high, highbrow. No, but, I don't, but I, don't I think, think it is. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. Abs- abs- so I just feel no, like sorry, go ahead. more grounded mm-hmm. now. No, sorry, I was just saying I feel I just feel a lot more grounded and 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 focused on other people and trying to help people now than I used to. Donnelly, for you, obviously you've had time to reflect, you've had time to move on, develop businesses, and all that. Um, I guess I'll just ask the same question. I'm asking it because it's easier for me to ask it than for me to answer it. So let me just say right now, I'm pimping you guys out on these answers uh, and putting you guys on the spot. But how do you feel? Do you feel like there was a certain energy, that certain drive to make up for lost time or capitalize on your experiences because, hey, that was lightning in a bottle and I got to make sense of that to move forward? How do you interpret all that? I would describe how I how I feel now and and the evolution post deployment as uh, coming to peace with the parts of my life that I can't control, and I say that because I've always been this person driven and very focused on A is going to lead to B. I'm going to mount that hill, get good in my SATs, and I'm into my biology degree at UC Irvine got to perform well. And then I'm taking the MCATs and getting into med school. And that's going to yep. lead to my residency. And, right. And right. so very linear and one mm-hmm. and con- wanting to, con- and loving that control, thriving on it and making those achievements. Well, 9-11 and my, my, my deployments and in my military life threw a wrench and all that, you know, there's just many things that were out of my control and I wasn't okay with that at first. And I even, you know, had some real tough conversations with God, you know, why me, so to speak? And my gosh, why am I involved in so much death and turmoil here? Even though I signed up the, for the military, this isn't what I expected. I was supposed to be on a ship out in a Pacific tour. Yeah. And next thing you know, I'm in the Marine Corps uh, or, you know, with the Marines, which turned out to be one of the best things that could have happened to me. And so ultimately I had to make peace with that's where God wanted me. That's my faith. That's how I made peace with it. I was just, that's where I was needed. And like it or not, I'm here. So, you know, suck it up, buttercup. You know, that's right. 
is, right. is how I finally reconciled with it. And that helped me release some of the weight on my shoulder, some of the, some of the threads I was trying to hang on to, to control my own life. And when I returned, I, I just rode that wave of being at peace with the things that I can't control. And I found that helped me be more successful and more happy as the years went on. I'm going to ask a question that is, um, that I'd much rather ask than answer. Let me say that up front. Um, but I wanted, I, I don't think we should end this subject without talking a little bit about uh, the need and the necessity to move forward with life, even after experiencing death and uh, experiencing death, sometimes of people we know. Um, commonly, I guess this is called survivor's guilt. Survivor's guilt. Sorry. Uh, so, Charlie, let me start with you since um, it's been a minute and I'll give everybody a chance to kind of gather your thoughts. But um, first, has that term meant something to you in the past? Has that been an issue that you've wrestled with? And where do you take strength to push on and consider yourself worthy and deserving of a future and of plans and ambitions and achievements Um knowing but there but for the grace of God you could have gone and and not made it back yeah so as as you know because we discussed this before Chris all my deployments have been really safe uh, as part of the the supporting the national task force I I had very safe assignments on the FOB but I got to see a lot I got to see the videos that we captured I got to see the task force guys coming back I got to see that impact and for me, I think we owe it to the ones that didn't come back to do something good with our lives. You know, you and I have talked before about this dysfunctional veteran movement, which I, I deeply despise and don't think it's healthy. I like to see highly functional veterans, and I think that's the work that all four of us on the show today do. I think that's very helpful for it. So I think a lot of people come back, and, and whether they, they deeply dislike their service or they enjoyed it, when you don't have it anymore, there's a hole in your heart. And what you fill it with is up to you, and that determines your future. You can fill it with hate, you can fill it with emptiness, or you can fill it with something good and useful. And, and I hope that the, our current batch of vets and future vets choose the latter and do something useful with it when they come back. Aaron, how about you? Is that something you've struggled with or had thoughts about? Yeah, I don't – you know, so I, I don't think I thought about it as much – um, until I was later in my twenties, um, you know, so my first, so when I was in the Marine Corps, you know, like I said, we, we lost, we didn't, my, our battalion lost folks in, on the first deployment. Our company lost, uh, a, a very, um, a great squad leader on the second deployment. I didn't personally lose anybody. Um, we had a lot of close calls and it was very, um, you know, there was some, some times where, now thinking back, looking at how some of those folks, um, you know, they survived and, and, and a lot of the adversity that they've overcome, it sort of puts things in perspective. Um, and, you know, over the years, I saw a lot more folks uh, pass away um, that I served with and that I knew that were veterans after mm -hmm. I got out. Mm -hmm. um, and that was very interesting. I mean, so many people that now are there's a Facebook in memoriam page for them. 
and it's this it's this reminder and it took i think it probably for me personally it probably took years um of of that i wouldn't say that's the only only reason um or the only catalyst to sort of be like okay let's 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 start to really find another purpose i guess let's find something that's more than just paying the bills going to school mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know living for for today but let's live for more than that um i'm incredibly fortunate um to be where i am um and you know i don't know man you ask you ask some really good questions some very deep some hard hard questions well, it's it's easier answer. for me as i say it's easier for me to ask than it is for me to answer <laughs> so i'm happy to throw them out there because it gets a you know puts this burden on somebody else but I'll, I'll throw you a different angle to it um, and give Donnelly some time to think about uh, when I when I go to him. Where does the deployment or how when you think about your entire life in the future, you know, what, what kind of life you build and the kind of life you're developing? Where do you want? Where do you envision your deployment and your deployed experiences stacking up in your list of accomplishments? Is it something that you think, look, I, I, that will always be at the core of everything I ever do. Um, are there more aspects to it that you want to explore and develop? Is it your, are you like, look, I, I want that to be the first stepping stone on a eight part, you know, uh, ladder of, of success that I've already mapped out and I'm aiming for. How do you, where do you want that to play a role in your life? How do you want that to play a role for the rest of your life? Yeah, uh, man, there's, I don't want it to be, I, I don't want to think about it mm. most of the yep. time. Um, I just want it to be, you know, it's not, it doesn't define me. Um, it was an extraordinary, uh, I think, experience, an ordinary, extraordinary, ordinary experience, something experienced by tens of thousands of other Helmand province grunts who fought the war that they were given, even if it didn't live up to their expectations. Um, and I, I wrote that in the book, by the way. It's a good line. Um, yeah. And yeah, so no, but I mean, really it, it's something that kind of in, encapsulates it. It's, it's, we all went to this war and then, um, and we came back and now it's just a part of me and there's, and it's, it's in my past. It's not, ever present. Um, I think going forward, man, it's, it's, it's not going to be the most important thing. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, Charlie was just talking about, um, veterans and, and I, I just, it's not going to be the, the defining aspect for the rest of my interesting. life. Interesting, Donnelly, what about you? I would, I would echo that. Uh, it, it will certainly always be among the top um, experiences in my life that has molded me. Uh, that's, that it would be impossible to say otherwise. And, uh, I feel very fortunate that it's been a positive experience for me and something that I've been able to build on in a positive way, because I know that's not the case for every person out there. And, um, you know, maybe if I was injured or I, I failed to perform my medical duties to my satisfaction, maybe I'd struggle with it a lot more than I do, but right. that wasn't the case. And I feel very fortunate for that. Uh, I, I, I love to echo or, you know, 
kind of expand on what you said, Charlie, and I like how you put it, that you can have this hole in your heart, and many veterans do, and it's your choice how to fill it. And I have heard that commonly in the veteran community that there's this sense of purpose that you have when you're serving, and you may not know it at the time, but but there is you're part of this you know unit, uh, band of brothers, and you know you develop these really close knit you know friendships, and you have these missions, and that's that's your lot in life. And if you're deployed, you're just getting to the next day and the next day and the next to earn the right to come home, and you've got that sense of purpose. And then when you're out of that environment, a lot of veterans have echoed it's hard to find that same sense of purpose. But it's up to you to find it and find a way to make it positive. And I've always been an optimist. And um, I know that there's hard, you know, discussions in the veteran community about the care of our veterans or PTSD or you name it. But I've always seen a, a, a continual effort to improve those services and what we do for our veterans and how the public perceives us. So I, I am very much in the in the camp of making that a positive thing amidst the very tough, you know, uh, discussion of war and how it affects humans and things like that. I'm, I, I planned on that being the last question on this subject, but I, I want to ask one more uh, based on what you said, Donnelly, and I'm going to ask it to you to start with. If, if you had to sum up what a civilian that doesn't even know anybody in the military, much less serve themselves what they should take away from your experiences or from any vets deployed experiences, but especially in combat, what would you want them to take away? What would you want them to be able to, if not internalize, at least appreciate? Great question. And I'll answer that a little bit self-serving, but I think I've realized the answer to your question since I've written my book, because I've had a number of it was published at the end of March, and I've had, you know, of course, family and friends and veterans and you know fellow fellow Marine Corps officers and naval officers read it, and then you know we'll run into each other, or they'll send me a message, or we'll get a chance to talk, and even some of the closest people to me in the civilian community have said, "Wow, I've known you for so many years, but I didn't know this, and you never told me that, or and how come you know maybe you never talked about that and." Um, that's been very profound for me because sometimes I didn't even realize it. It's, it's you know, because I think a, a lot of veterans will tell you that you can't ever fully sit down and just have a conversation and explain what you went through. And maybe you don't even want to, but it, but it's part of you. It's part of who you are. And you, you have to live it, you know, to fully understand it. Just like, you know, maybe being a father, you got to go through it to fully understand it. So writing the book for me helped me um, expand on these parts of my life and those feelings and being very vulnerable, you know, when, when, you, when you write is, is part of making it real and making it good. So I was able to do that. And that was, that was very helpful for me. And then to answer your question on what, what I want them to, to know about me. Um, or takeaway. Or takeaway. What should their takeaway be? Yeah. yeah. The takeaway for me was... If, and I, I this is kind of at the end of my book, a little three-line saying that I came up with is get your heart and mind balanced, get your body fit, 
grab a fistful of courage and just go after it. And that's just my little motto that I came up with to summarize my 10-year experience and what I would like to relay to my fellow man and woman. And of course, I go into more details on what I mean by that, but that's how I would sum it up. Interesting. Aaron, what about you? Yeah, I think The Hill is about what it was like to be a young Marine grunt in Helmand Province, Afghanistan, and everything that came with that. And that's, that's all I knew. That's all I know. And that's what I wrote about. And so my hope is that, you know, folks, I didn't set out to write about leader, uh, write a book about Mm -hmm. leadership. um, Although I chose how I tried to do leadership. Um, I didn't write a book about the geopolitics of Afghanistan or the bigger picture. I just wanted to write about the experience of being a grunt infantry in Helmand province, Afghanistan. And I, my, my hope is that folks come away and they have a picture of what that means. And then folks who were there, um, and see that it authentically and accurately represents their experience. It's funny because it, it, I I know you're, you're, uh, I don't want to say you're underselling it, but but you're definitely showing that you wrote with a narrow scope uh, and a narrow aperture in mind for for the book, and I think that's wise, uh, certainly as a writer, uh, because you're you're not you know trying to bite off more than you can chew, and you're speaking about the stuff you really truly can speak about with expertise. Um, but I do think even on that granular level, um, the thing I was just thinking about was a. a person I knew who's a fellow Sunday school teacher in, I've said this before, I think on the podcast, but in 2012, I remember him, uh, uh, telling his class that, uh, that since we're all out of Afghanistan, uh, we don't need to talk about that anymore. And I remember he looked over at me looking for, for my reaction. And I, I, I just remember, I, I couldn't say anything. I was so gobsmacked that he didn't know we were very much still in Afghanistan. And I think even just on a current events level, sometimes it's good for people to be aware that, um, hey, we were actually there and this is what we did and this is what it entailed. And, uh, you know, to your point about even enlisting and not knowing we're still in Iraq, you know, that sometimes just that disconnect with the civilian population, it's enough just to let them know this is what we've been up to for the last 20 something years. And um, this wasn't just happening in, uh, you know, on the news, this is actually real people doing real things. And it sounds banal to say and, and obvious to say, but sometimes those obvious things bear repeating and bear uh, looking into and, and making sure people are aware of. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I just, uh, I think with everything that's going on in the news now too, um, you know, it sort of re-energized the conversation about Afghanistan and, and I think for me personally, it's made me think a lot about, you know, the things I wrote in the book and, and really just the experience in general. So that's, a yeah, good I, and at some point, um, we should have you back on to talk more at length about Afghanistan. Cause obviously, um, yeah, it, I, I've never seen so many news stories about Afghanistan since probably like 2002 as I have right now. So certainly it's, um, I, kind of bittersweet that it's getting the coverage is getting now anyway be that as it may um donnelly let me let's uh just talk about the 
fundamentals of your book. Uh, so tell people, first off, what was the what was the origin story of your inspiration to just write it? Obviously, you'd had the experiences. Why did you choose to write it at the time you did, especially considering you were deployed downrange? What was the backstory behind that? When I went back to Iraq in 2008 w- with the Marines again, and, you know, I found myself um, out in the remote outskirts of Iraq. It was Al-Qaim, you know, border of Iraq and Syria. And, uh, you know, kind of resurfaced a lot of memories and um, experiences from that first deployment. Uh, You know, I won't lie, I was dreading it a little bit, but I I got my moto and knew I had to go through it again. And um, this time I was married. And so I had some defined goals getting back to see my wife. And so killing the time of deployment is some of the toughest time even amidst the, you know, duties and, you know, um, lots of action, there's a lot of downtime. So I just kind of was inspired to pick up and start writing. And in short order, I said, well, why don't I just kind of try to make this a memoir? And that's what I did. And I, I, I wrote the, the bones of Code Red Fallujah on that second deployment. And it helped me get through for sure. It was, it was cathartic. And then to further answer your question, as the years went on, you know, and it became clear that the Battle of Fallujah was a big event. There was two of them, of course. Right. I was I was at the first one, and it was the premier, you know, most violent event of the 10-year Iraq War. And for military medicine, it was pretty unique. You know, there was just a handful of us that were that close to the front lines, and I just happened to be there. You know, my battalion was one of two in the initial assault into Fallujah. And I happened to um, be one of two battalion surgeons, and there I am. And um, obviously, you know, the bulk of the book is it's going through the emotions and the events and just what mm-hmm. happened. And uh, the years pass, and, you know, it, I, I knew it was a unique story, and I felt that it was important to, to tell it and uh, that I had been blessed enough to come through it. And uh, and have a message to share with everybody else. Did you feel an extra obligation to write it, being that you were one of two surgeons forward deployed in that initial invasion, or was it really just you personally wanted to tell this story? It, it was a, it was a little bit of 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 both. It, initially, uh, you know, writing it was for me. It was mm-hmm. for, and I put it down for years. When I came home, there was no plans to do anything. Um. But I did feel an obligation as the years went on to 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 pick it up and say, you know, I'd I'd love to talk to this about to other people because people would ask me and they expressed a lot of interest and they were very shocked, you know, because I think, you know, um, most people might see a physician as a as a um, career of opportunity and maybe even one of privilege. And that's okay, Mm -hmm. You know, there's some stigma about it. Um, But I wanted to let people know that there's so many young professionals out there, not just in medicine, but that who choose to serve um, in the, in the military, in the, in the medical corps, uh, or as, as a lawyer, one of my best friends was our battalion lawyer, all kinds of jobs. And um, okay, that, sorry, just to interrupt for one yeah. second, can I just say personally, as a enli- former enlisted guy, I never had a problem with a physician that was elite. <laughs> I think there's a good place for elitism and and being a, and in doctors in the medical field, that's one of them. So let me just throw that out there um, for those that might be tempted to make this into a class thing. I think that's absolutely a place where you want the best of the best with all the privilege, education and training that they can possibly have. 
let me just throw that out there. Thank you for that. And you're right. You know, you, you don't want to go into that environment feeling anything else. And I and I did envision myself as, you know, an elite combat medic um, because that's what it was. You know, a lot of the other skills go out the window. You just want to know field medicine. So I think the Navy did a good job training me for that. And I won't lie. I had adrenaline going through my veins when we were out at Pendleton going on night raids with, you know, with the platoons and they're taking me along for the ride. It was a thrill. And you, you want to have that, you know, as part of your, sure. your armor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, um, I got off sorry, track on the going. question. No, 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 you're good. So, <laughs> so basically, um, so that was the, the, the sense of obligation that you had in writing yes. the book, right? Um, and so it, there is a part of it then that does serve a little, not just as memoir, but also as um, lessons learned, yes. right? Yes. Yes. And, you know, it was a unique experience. I do admit some some of it's it's hard to put all this in a book and throw it out to the public because it can sound self-serving. And I definitely love the humility involved in the best leaders and the best professions in the world. I think there's an element of humility. Yet there are these young professionals and, you know, it's kind of like... Kind of like Top Gun, you know, the United States and the American military is the best at training these young professionals, put them into impossible situations, and they perform. And and I love that part of yeah. our history, and I got to be part of it. I wanted to tell about it. Aaron, let me segue to the Hill then. Uh, and I'm going to start, uh, rather than asking you how you got about to writing it, um, let me start just by picking up what Donnelly just threw out about the humility was there ever a part of you that was like, I'm not the guy that should be writing about this, um, you know, or was there a part of you that, you know, that, that I know the feeling and I'm, I'm being autobiographical. I'm asking this for a very self-serving reason. I think anytime a vet starts to do something uh, to stick their head above the crowd, um, everyone in the military kind of looks and like, well, who the hell are you to do this? Who the hell are you to say about this? Um, was there ever a sense about that for you or, or am I just uh, – sharing a little bit of my own neuroses. Yes, absolutely. All the time, still to this day. I, I still don't understand. Um, there, there are just days when I'm like, I just, I should not be, I should not have written this book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I'm not the guy. I'm, I mean, I was just, you know, and then, and then I just, I, I have conversations with people that I trust and, and, and just sort of talk to talk through it and say, you know, if not, if I'm not going to write about it, then who, right. you know, I mean, it's, it's, I haven't, it's, it's not that there haven't been a, a large number of books written about Afghanistan. It's just, you know, this, this war, my war, you know, my personal war and, and the personal and the war shared by uh, a number of different Marines in Hellman. But yeah, I mean, to answer your question, absolutely. I, I was like I said I'm I don't view myself as extraordinary in any way I I you know experienced deployments that were nowhere near as kinetic as other people's deployments um but I just wrote it and I had the capacity to write it and I tried to do my absolute best Talk a little bit about that then did you start writing as kind of de facto therapy or was there another purpose behind your initial writing? 
I don't think I would ever have thought of it as therapy. Um, but once the manuscript, once the manuscript was, um, like once the first draft of the current, like how it is now was done. Right. And like, once that was, was done and that was shortly before I, I linked up with Charlie and it was like this weight just sort of came mm. off my shoulders about it. Um, I had started writing the first story, which I rewrote and rewrote and rewrote. It was about one day. Um, and I rewrote that many, many times. Um, but I actually wrote, uh, essentially I tried to write fields of fire, um, by James Webb. Um, it's a Vietnam war novel, um, uh, about a small unit and, that was something that I read on my first deployment and I, I really related to it. So after my second deployment, I, I sort of wanted to write a war novel. I wanted to write a classic oh. war novel and I tried, um, my skill in writing was not up to it. And I, I didn't, you know, it was interesting. We're talking about humility. I didn't have the humility to see that my writing, you know, hmm. wasn't good enough to, to convey what I wanted to convey in the third person in the way that I wanted to convey it. So I basically it was fiction, scrapped right? it. was it a in, fiction piece that you were trying to write. It was going to be yeah. fiction. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I scrapped that whole manuscript. I mean, not scrapped. I put it aside. Right. Um, I followed the advice of, of some folks who say, write your first book and then, and then put it aside. Um, and then I wrote it as a first person memoir. Um, and I finished that in a few months and it was, it was very quick. Um, wow. and then I started, working on it and editing it. And of course that was not the end of things, but yeah, that was the process. Are there going to be more books, Aaron? Um, God willing, you know, hopefully. Nonfiction, um, fiction? I think I'm going to try fiction. Good for you. Wow. Yeah. All right. Diving back into the deep end. All right. Good deal. <laughs> yeah. Donnelly, what about you? On a second book? Yeah. Uh, I won't say no, but I would, I would say I'm just kind of seeing where this ride takes me. <laughs> and, and, you know, enjoying uh -huh. it, it, it took many years like Aaron to get the final product completed. And, um, it was a lot of work outside my normal job. My wife was very patient, but sure. it's paid off, you know, simply because I was able to get it to the finish line. I'm very proud of it. And just, uh, trying to share it with people and make it a positive thing. And we're, I'm just going to see where, where that ride takes me and then I'll decide on a second or not. If you were to do a second, would it be nonfiction, fiction? Where would you go with it? You know, if it was tagging on anything, of course, with from the first book, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it would certainly be nonfiction. But if I had to answer today, I'd say fiction. Oh, cool. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. All right. Uh, Charlie, we're going to shift gears. What uh, What's going on at Second Mission that we can talk that we should talk about today? Sure. So we're still fully focused on getting the hill out there to the people. We're in the in the early stages right now of promoting it, working with Aaron on that. But once we get sec once we get the hill up and going, and we get we get that settled, we're working on Armor of God, which is our next book. It's about an armor officer's experiences in Iraq. It's written by a guy named Matt Saker, who's one of my friends here at West Point. So I think that we really on to we're really onto something here with these books. You, you and I talked several times, Chris, about how therapeutic writing is and how vets need a second mission after they get out. And I think second mission is going to concentrate right now on helping both vets get their stories out through books. Learned a lot working with Aaron. This is the first time he wrote a book, first time we published a book. Looking forward to working with him on subsequent works after the Hill. And also he's offered to help us out getting other people published and we're going to take him up on that. That's outstanding. Yeah, that's really outstanding. Um, 
I won't do my typical uh, speech that I've done multiple times on this show about the importance of vets writing. And and I don't – the only thing I'll say on it because uh, I can't just let that linger out there is that uh, – I don't uh, to kind of dovetail what you said, Aaron. Actually, you know, I don't think it necessarily has to be therapeutic in intent. I think there's a lot of good for people that have never served and don't have a a feel, a sensitivity for what military service is like. Um, I, I think it's there's no substitute for it. It's your own words. It's your own unfiltered mainline of of emotion, of experience, of accumulated wisdom and all that. And there, it's the best way to, to get that out. And I do think there's a degree of public service um, just in sharing personal stories like that. So anyway, that's my little soapbox speech. Aaron, Charlie, and of course, Dr. Donnelly Wilkes, who was gracious enough to allow me to call him Donnelly the whole time. <laughs> Thank you guys for being here. Really appreciate it, guys. A lot of fun, you guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Chris and, and Aaron and Donnelly. That great show. Thanks for being on today. You bet. So to, thank you for of having course. Me. And to everyone else listening, if you haven't already subscribed, please do. If you have any feedback, questions, comments, snide remarks, leave them all. And if you could attach your comments to a five-star review, especially if you're on iTunes, that would be dynamite. We will have show notes. I'm not sure we'll have a ton of them. We will certainly have links to Code Red Fallujah and to The Hill uh, and to Second Mission. And off the top of my head, I can't remember if we really will need too many other notes. But anyway, whatever we need, we will have at theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com or in my accompanying article at Havoc Journal or wherever you're currently listening to this podcast. We'll also have alibis for anything I misstated, anything that needs more context, anything that I woke up at 2 in the morning and was like, why did I say it like that? I should have said it like this. Um Maybe right now, the the one alibi that's coming to mind I might put out there is that I really need to stop drinking Dunkin' Donuts cold brew right before I do the show because my brain goes into sixth gear and I really don't have that many gears in my brain. But anyway, we'll see if that actually makes it into a formal written alibi. That is also applicable to our guests. If our guests have any brain farts that they want to clear up or anything they need to CYA, they can also submit show alibis, although generally nobody takes me up on that because I'm the only one that really tends to misstate things in a way that needs to be rectified in writing. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Dr. Donnelly Wilkes, Aaron Kirk, and Charlie Faint. And we'll keep trying to make order out of chaos when we see you next time for the Weekly Havoc. I knew it was going to be a good show. I was just very nervous. I've never been on a podcast, not a, a guest on a podcast. Before, well, God, that, so thank no, you for listen, I'm, I'm glad you could come on, but that does remind me. I really missed it, Charlie. I, I needed to make a bigger deal of that up front. Aaron's the first Marine I think we've had on the show. So I was wondering about this. Is, our, is this our yeah. first multi-service show? Because you got you and me in the Army. You got a God, Marine right. and this, you got a Naval officer. Dave, Donnelly's the first. Is he the first Navy guy? Oh, that's right, because we were going to have a SEAL on and we didn't. Yeah, I think he's the first. Right? I think I think he is. Wow, you guys are breaking all kinds <laughs> of barriers today, boy. I, I needed to plug that a lot more at the top of the show. <laughs> Jeez, I really missed that. Okay, well, I yeah. guess we'll just have to have him back, and we need to find someone in the Air Force that's brave enough to go on the show at the same time. I think that defies the very mission of the Air Force. Doesn't it? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Please send your hate mail to Charlie Fane. Thank you. Well, uh, if you want to complete the Carrie circle, Pat- <laughs> you got to yeah, the Coast Guard too. 
Oh, in the Space Force. But I don't, no, even, right. I don't even know anybody in the Space Force. Charles so tell me about the first time that your Control-F didn't work. What was that like <laughs> for you? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs>